It's said that on one occasion, the Buddha was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anathapindaka's park. And then deep into the night, as the Buddha was sitting in meditation, a certain deva of stunning beauty appeared, illuminating the entire of Jetta's Grove with her brilliance. And she approached the Blessed One. She paid homage to him and stood to one side and said to him, Tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. By not staying still, friend, and by not struggling, I crossed over the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not staying still and by not struggling, you were able to cross over the flood? When I was still, I sank, but when I struggled, I was spun about. In this way, friend, by not staying still and by not struggling, I crossed over the flood. Then the deva exclaimed, at long last I see a Brahmin who is fully unbound, who by not being still and not struggling has crossed over the entanglements of the world. That is what the deva said and the teacher approved. Then realizing the teacher has approved of me, she bowed to him, circumambulated him and vanished right then and there. This is one of my favorite teachings. It's the the very first sutta in the um, Samyutta Nikaya and the Connected Discourses. This is the sutta that launches that whole uh, very large, very weighty uh, book of teachings. And uh, there's a commentary on it which I found useful in thinking about this. Uh, The commentary says that this particular deva was was quite proud. She was approaching the Buddha uh, with not the greatest uh, respect. And so the Buddha was trying to kind of startle her out of her uh, haze of pride with uh, a paradox in this teaching. Uh, The paradox apparently being, this might be more obvious if we lived in northern India, uh, either today or perhaps in ancient times, that apparently the way that you do try to cross uh, the Ganges when it's flooded at the end of the rainy season is by struggling and stopping. <laughs> um, apparently the, the uh, traditional way of doing that is that you kind of pick out a spot where there's, there's some high ground in the middle. They're, they're uh, scattered throughout the river, some rocks or something, or some high places. And so you, you know, go as hard as you can to get to the first stopping place and then you rest where you can get a foothold and you kind of take a breather. And then again, you, you know, struggle, struggle, and then you stop again until you get all the way across the river. So for the deva, this would have been perhaps surprising to the Buddha that he said uh, that this is not the way that he got across. He got across by not standing still and by not struggling. And there's a lot of different ways to think about this teaching um, because it really captures the, the, the essence, the feeling of the middle path so beautifully through this analogy. And there's many different ways that it can be interpreted, that it has been interpreted over the years. But for me, um, what's been most significant in my own practice and thinking about this teaching is in relationship to skillful effort and what constitutes a a skillful and a useful and productive way of mobilizing effort in practice. There was a time um, when I was practicing in seclusion in uh, Burma in a little hut, a little kuti. And it was kind of a slow time at the monastery. It was in the hot season, time when not a lot of people... Uh, we're coming out to the, the dusty, hot monastery, and uh, a teacher would come just once a week to give interviews to the English-speaking yogis. So most of the time I was on my own, and 
Uh, at one point, uh, feeling a lack of inspiration, I used my some of my few very precious pieces of, of paper out of my notebook to put up little Dharma teachings kind of around my, my hut, you know, little pithy bits of the teaching that I felt were helpful and inspiring. And over, over time, over a period of a couple months uh, during the hot season there, I kind of gradually took down the notes. I take down first this one, oh, I don't really need this one anymore, and take down that one. Um, just as I got more comfortable and more confident navigating my practice by myself, until by the end of the, the hot season, there were just two left that I had up. Um, one was a list of the factors of enlightenment, <laughs> and the other was just a little note that said, not stopping and not struggling. <laughs> it just came down to that, that if I just kept that in mind, that really I could use, this, use that as a compass to navigate pretty much anything that might come up in the course of practice. These days, in the, the conditions in my life that I have now, it makes... Um, more intuitive sense to me to think of this simile set in a modern day swimming pool <laughs> with my children. My uh, son, who's just turned five, just before I came up here, he uh, took his first like real independent swimming class where they were actually trying to, to teach him to swim. And this was his first venture into to real, you know, the learning to try to swim. And he's still standing still and, stop and struggling, <laughs> you know. So he loves to, um, you know, when the teacher or me or my husband would kind of, you know, you put one hand under him to just support him so he doesn't sink. And you kind of glide him around the pool and, you know, he puts out his arms and just kind of floats and, you know, uh, we're doing all the work, you know. <laughs> He's not really doing anything. If we let go, he just sinks like an, like an anchor. Um, or, you know, after he's had his lessons and they've been trying to teach him to breathe and trying to teach him to kick and move his arms, if, if you try to take the hand out and say, okay, you know, start kicking, start, start swimming, then there's kind of all this just random thrashing around and, you know, splashing and, you know, kicking every which way and flailing of arms. And, you know, he hasn't quite got the hang of coordinating his movements in a purposeful way. So, you know, at this point uh, in his swim career, swimming career, he's not going to be able to get himself across the pool. Um, you know, if, God forbid, he were to, to fall off a pier someplace, he's not going to be able to get himself out of the water. It'll come with time, but he's not there yet. My daughter, on the other hand, has been um, swimming for a number of years now, and um, she's a reasonably competent swimmer, swimmer. You know, she's not Katie Ledecky. <laughs> But she can get herself across the pool. You know, if she fell off of the pier, she'd be able to get herself back to safety. You know, we hope she's got the skills for it. Just through this, you know, approach of, of coordinated, purposeful movement. You know, not stopping and not struggling. Just doing kind of a basic, competent front crawl across the pool. She can get to the other side. And this is really kind of the the 20th century revolution in the Dharma that we're all enjoying the benefits of now that we don't actually have to be Katie Ledecky. <laughs> we don't actually have to be world-class meditators to get across the flood of all of the uh, things in our mind that uh, torture us. You know, some of us will be. Some of us will be those world-class meditators. And, uh, you know, thank goodness for that, because we need those people to, to show us the way, to guide us. But actually, for most of us, we just need to be able to do kind of a competent front crawl. <laughs> that, that's actually good enough. To, to use the abilities that we have in harmony with the laws of nature in a coordinated way. And this is one of the places that we really hold ourselves to unreasonable standards. You know, I think a lot of the time we come here, especially having 
set the bar really high, you know, here we are at the forest refuge, and we're really kind of holding ourselves to this this unreasonable standard, this unrealistic standard that we should be, you know, world-class yogis every moment of the day here, or at least some significant chunk of it. And it's just not really uh, either realistic or, or really necessary. So it's, it's obvious, you know, to say that uh, our meditation, uh, progress on our spiritual path requires some effort, requires some energy. But finding just that particular quantity and quality of effort that's going to be effective, that is not always obvious by any stretch of the means, any stretch of, of means and it, all the time. The Buddha did emphasize the importance of skillful effort over and over again. This is another one of these uh, qualities uh, that he, that's, appears in so many of these teaching lists. It appears uh, in the seven factors of enlightenment, uh, the controlling faculties, the spiritual powers, the paramis, and you know, last but not least, the Eightfold Path itself, this quality of skillful effort. So it's fairly obvious that we're not going to get anywhere on the path if we don't put the effort into putting the teachings into practice. Most of us uh, in our uh, meditative careers, we usually go through a flirtation stage. I know this was true for me and for many people I've spoken to where there's kind of an abstract appreciation for the teachings. You know, we're listening to talks, uh, we're maybe reading books, you know, whatever we're doing. And it kind of makes sense, but we're not really doing the practice yet. We're not really uh, ready to, to, to walk the talk. Um, and we only get limited benefit from the teachings in that way. Maybe we get a little bit, but it's not really going to transform our lives, not really going to transform our hearts and minds until we're ready to, to put the pedal to the metal and actually do the practice. So at some point we activate that quality of, of effort, the mental energy that's needed to, to actually do the practice. And we need uh, skillful effort in every other aspect of the path. Uh, you know, it's, it's really essential for the whole of the path, for uh, gaining understanding of the teachings, for um, bringing our aspiration, our intention into alignment with what's actually wholesome, uh, for, for purifying our conduct in the world. Or, or we might say, bringing more consciousness to how we are in the world, how we speak, how we act, the uh, activities that we use to earn our live, livelihood, bringing awareness to all of that. And then, of course, also in our meditation practice as well. It takes a lot of effort to do this. One of the, the qualities of skillful effort is that it's, it's purposeful. This is very much the way that the Buddha spoke about it not just as an end in itself, but as a vehicle, as a tool to apply, to get us where we want to go, to get us across that flood. So in the traditional formula for the Eightfold Path, there's a a very clear message in how skillful effort is described, that it's the effort that we need to mobilize to create a wholesome environment in the mind. This is really what skillful effort is about in terms of our meditation practice, creating a wholesome environment in the mind. And there's this traditional fourfold formula, which you may be familiar with, which is that, uh, so if, if there's a situation where there's nothing unwholesome arising in the mind, then we keep it that way. We try to maintain that. Or if there is something unwholesome going on in the mind, then we try to 
move it along, or at least to transform it, to, t- to take the uh, wind out of it. On the other hand, if there's not anything wholesome going on in the mind, then we try to invite it in. We try to nurture something wholesome, nurse, nurture wholesome qualities of mind. Or if there is something wholesome already going on in the mind, then we try to sustain it, to create conditions for it to, to grow and to continue. So this is the, the fourfold formula for the traditional statement of skillful effort, which all just really boils down to, <laughs> at least in the way that we approach practice here, the effort to be mindful. Mindfulness, of course, being the next spoke on the wheel, traditionally after skillful effort. Through mindfulness, we actually accomplish uh, this, this uh, purifying of the mind, the creating of, of, a, of a nice, wholesome, healthy environment in the mind where insight can arise. So we're really c- preparing the ground. We can think of a skillful effort in this function as, as like weeding out the, the bed in our garden. You know, we've got a, a garden bed. It's been sitting all winter. Uh, maybe the spring has come and weeds are starting to pop up in it. So, so skillful effort is that effort that we, that we put in up front at the beginning of the growing season <laughs> to kind of clear out the weeds, turn the bed over, add some fertilizer, get it in, into the kind of shape that it needs for the things that we want to grow there quieting down the hindrances, enough so that we're able to actually connect with the present moment. This is what it really boils down to, which we might think of as, um, you know, for those of you that have done concentration practices, this is sort of the vipassana equivalent, the insight equivalent of access concentration, which is really about, uh, in either case, whether we're doing concentration practices or we're doing mindfulness practices, insight practices, either case, in order to um, cultivate what we want to cultivate in the mind, we have to do this initial clearing of the ground, this initial purification of the mind, preparing of the mind. And it's also helpful to remember that skillful effort, uh, as with so many things in the Dharma, the Buddha was so practical. So he defined it in terms of effect, you know, that the proof is in the pudding. So he didn't define skillful effort in terms of, you know, we need to be able to sit unmoving for an hour, or we need to be able to be continuously mindful uh, for the whole of the walking period, uh, or even for half of the walking period, or even for one step. You know, he didn't define it in any absolute terms of what is skillful effort. He defined it in terms of what is the effect that it has on the mind. So this is the litmus to always keep referring to as we modulate our own practice. You know, how is the way that I'm applying effort uh, today or in the sitting or in this moment, how is it affecting the atmosphere, the environment of the mind? Is it moving in the direction of more wholesomeness, uh, more enlightenment factors, or is it moving me, as may sometimes be the case, in the direction of more hindrances, (laughs) misapplied effort? The Buddha said, cultivate the good. It is possible. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. So cultivate what is good. Abandon the unwholesome. It is possible to abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. So abandon the unwholesome. This, this is a really beautiful verse that captures that, uh, that quality that, you know, we can do it. We can do this. If it weren't possible, we, the Buddha would not have asked us to do it. He wouldn't have bothered to try to share this with us if he didn't think we could do it. It can be very daunting to think of our practice in terms of 
okay, I've got to completely eradicate all unwholesome mental states from my mind, like for the rest of my life, or even for the rest of my retreat, you know, or even for the rest of the sitting. You know, that's very daunting to think of it in those terms, to make it this big project. Um, it's just not a helpful way to approach practice. And it's, it's also not effective, you know, good luck with that. Our practice, just, just as in our life, it doesn't happen in big chunks of time like that. Right? There's a lot of delusion in, in approaching the flow of life, the pl- flow of experience in that way. It unfolds moment by moment by moment. You know, there's this moment, and then the next one, and then the next one. So we don't cultivate this kind, this kind of freedom, this kind of clarity of mind, or experience it all at once. It's just very momentary. You know, now there's this moment, we deal with that. Now there's the next moment, now there's the next one. And that we can do. You know, we can just meet the next moment, and we can just meet the next one after that. That's manageable. That's what we can actually do. And the doing of that is what we call skillful effort. So it's said that it's the mental quality of virya, I'm sure you've heard, that, that drives skillful effort, that, that's the, the mental state that's behind the skillful application of effort. And, uh, you know, there's many possible translations. This is one of, the, one of the many poly terms that it's really hard to find an English equivalent for it. It's just like, it's an idea that whoever created English just did not have. They did not have an understanding of this quality. So, you know, very often it's, it's translated as effort or energy. But that, that's such a kind of one-dimensional um, portrayal of what this quality really is. And, you know, over the years I've gone through various generations of what my preferred translation for virya is. Um, these days I like perseverance. That's what I like these days. So it's, it's not an aggressive energy. You know, it's, it's so much a part of just our cultural conditioning when we think of energy, when we think of effort, to think of this real kind of macho force. Um, and that's not the quality of virya. So the image is more of a, of a marathon runner than a sprinter. You know, being in it for the long haul, having this quality of really patience builds into it, perseverance. So it's, it's a quality of energy that's, that's very well-paced, it's very measured, it's not a sprint. There's a teaching that says that uh, the function of virya is to strengthen the mind. So we might also think of it as, as strength of mind. And it also says that uh, virya manifests as mental stamina, which my teacher Upandita, who passed away recently, he used to call this quality of virya, sometimes he would call it spiritual stamina. Yeah, I like that, that image also of stamina, of just being able to stay the course, you know, stick it out. So we might think of virya as um, maybe also courage, a courageous effort. It has this, this aspect of, of bravery, of courage or persistence, or steadfastness. I like that one also, steadfastness, the willingness to just stand firm in the face of what's coming. And the Buddha, of course, is, is our you know, supreme role model for this quality in this, in this very uh, image that we have here in the hall of him on the night of his enlightenment, um, where he's just, he's just standing his ground, you know, this movement of touching the earth. You know, he's not 
giving a lot of justification for why he should be where he is seeking full enlightenment. He, you know, he didn't get into a big argument with Mara when uh, Mara came to, to present him with a lot of difficulties and abs- obstacles. He's just simply standing his ground. So he's really a great role model for us. And it's not anything that from the outside would look like great effort. You know, it's, it's always so funny to look around at a room full of yogis <laughs> And it doesn't look like a whole lot is happening. <laughs> but as we all know, you know, there's so much going on inside of each of us and inside of all of us collectively that there's this great effort going on. So just through being willing to, to keep showing up moment after moment, over time we cultivate this quality more and more of being able to be steadfast, being able to persevere, being able to um, have stamina, and to just, to just keep going, to have the uh, strength, the strength of mind to face whatever arises, not avoiding it or avoiding it less and less as we're so conditioned to do. And we really get to see in, in subtler and subtler ways, and many of you have been talking about this, seeing the, the increasingly subtle ways in which the mind tries to avoid experience. So skillful effort is a lot about just being willing to sit through all of that not attacking experience, not uh, pouncing on it, not trying to uh, spear it with our mindfulness, but just really uh, meeting it as it is. This is a a quote from Mahasi Sayada um, from his um, Manual of Insight, which has just recently been published in an English version. And his way of languaging this, he uses the word uh, noting. We could basically think of it as a shorthand for being mindful of. So he says, when energy is excessive, one strives too much. One may end up searching for experiences to note. One may be concerned that one cannot note experiences effectively or that one might miss experiences that should be noted. Sometimes one may end up thinking about how effectively one will note future experiences or how often one missed past experiences. The mind cannot become well concentrated with all of this excessive worry. It will just be restless. Because of this restlessness, restlessness, one will not be able to be clearly aware of arising experiences. In this way, excessive effort results in weak concentration and unclear experience in practice. This is excessive effort that interferes with practice. I find this so interesting. (laughs) You know, I think this is one, really one of the ways in which the translation of the teaching to the West has been at times uh, misunderstood. You know, that we can, we have this idea based on, you know, just some of the cultural translation of the teachings that it's, you know, really about just like pouncing on every moment. You got to get every moment of experience and be mindful of it and, you know, run it through with our sphere of mindfulness. And, um, you know, that that is in the languaging of how it's come across, you know, at times. Um, but if we, if we really go back to the source, if we go back to Mahasi's writings that are just starting to become available, um, if we talk to the Asian masters, the Burmese masters, then in practice, it's not really the way that they recommend that we approach it, <laughs> you know, for them too. It's not uh, always so effective to just give it everything that we've got. It's kind of over-efforting, this kind of striving, you know, trying to make the practice happen, trying to push through every experience or push into every experience or just, just force there to be more energy or more presence than is there, trying to force the practice to happen. Uh, this is like struggling in the midst of that flood. And we just get swept away, 
You know, we see this for ourselves. It doesn't work. You know, at some point we get this. I remember in the past, um, when I reflect on how I practiced sometimes, sometimes in the past in my practice, it had this feeling of being a little bit like a Pac-Man game. You know, <laughs> it's just like, you know, trying to gobble up every single moment, you know, got to get each one. And there being this really like competitive, you know, striving, ambitious quality to my practice, which was, you know, with hindsight, just not so helpful. Didn't create a wholesome environment in the mind. So on the one hand, it's obvious that our practice requires effort. And yet there's this paradox that actually trying to find that place of the particular quality and quantity of effort that's going to be effective is is not clear always. It's a bit of an art. It takes practice to get just that right touch, you know, and, and, and often we lose it and then we have to find it again. We tend to either work too hard and get exhausted get worn out by our efforts. And usually this is what's happening if we, if we feel like the practice is just so onerous and such a burden and it's like so much work and how can we possibly do this and how can we possibly carry on? Like that whole trip um, very often is coming out of an imbalance of energy that we may not even be aware of. But in some way there's a pushing, there's a striving that's creating the sense of just uh, dharma fatigue. Or we can also fall into to not working hard enough. You know, we can become complacent, especially at times when maybe calm is building, tranquility is building, uh, there starts to be some more pleasant experience and it's just nice to kind of just hang out, the flow of things, you know. There's a way in which we can stop really connecting with experience. And again, we see over time that, you know, this way of approaching practice is also not very satisfying. There starts to be a sense of just not really connecting with experience, not really being in the flow and getting it, or even just outright sloth and torpor creeping in when the the quality of the effort is is not diligent enough. So skillful effort is, on the one hand, it's very gentle. On the other hand, it's very persistent. It's not striving. It's not stopping. One metaphor uh, that I think of in in terms of skillful effort is... um, taking my children to, um, at the the nature center near us, every year they have one of these butterfly exhibits, which (laughs) if you have children, you've probably been to one, they're very popular right now. So they'll they'll close off like a room or a section of a greenhouse or something and just release all these um, uh, butterfly uh, cocoons into it. Cocoons, is that the right term? But all the little, you know, the pupa that the butterflies come out of and the children come in, can come in and watch them hatch. And over the, the course of the exhibit, the room becomes just filled with butterflies, um, which is really pretty, ma- pretty magical. But it's a chance to um, examine the behavior of butterflies a little more closely than we usually get to out in nature where they're usually trying to get away from us. And you can see how the butterflies, you know, when they land, they come to land on a flower, you know, or something that they're interested in getting whatever it is that they need from, some food or some water, you know, they just, they just kind of flit down, you know, just so light, there's hardly anything to them, and then just, they just, just barely make contact, and there they are in the flower. You know, it's just such a light effort to land on that flower. And when I'm in that flow of feeling like I'm in a place of skillful effort, then this is how it feels to me, that it's just this incredibly light contact you know, each moment's experience is, is so ephemeral and so light, you know, like a butterfly when we really look. And it, it only takes just the slightest little 
hardly anything of an effort to really meet the present moment if we, if we pay attention. You know, that really is true. That, although at, at times, you know, when I'm not in that place, <laughs> I can feel like I'm really taking a sledgehammer to the moment, you know, not landing on it like a butterfly, but really hammering it with uh, my awareness. But when we're in the flow of, of skillful effort, then there's just this light connection. But the, the, tri- the trick or the caveat <laughs> is that we've got to then do that in the next moment and in the next moment and in the next moment, then in the next moment, and really mobilize that quality of, of persevering effort, persistent effort, of patient effort, to be willing to do it over and over and over again. It, it's said that the reason that we don't all immediately realize insight and, and get the truth of impermanence is through not having sustained enough awareness, that we take too many breaks. So we notice a moment or two, and then we miss a moment or two, and then we notice a moment or two, and we miss a moment or two, kind of like that, so that we don't actually get the big picture. You know, whereas if we can be continuous moment by moment by moment by moment, then really quite quickly <laughs> it becomes obvious, oh, it's all disappearing. But it's, it's, you know, that's not trivial to do, so we have to practice. When he talked about um, one of the deciding factors and uh, the, the founding f- uh, parents of uh, the center landing here in this particular spot was the fact that they realized that Barry's motto, town motto, is tranquil and alert. <laughs> Which again, you know, not struggling, not stopping, it really seemed like an omen. So this is what we're here to learn, to be tw- tranquil and alert. Not struggling, not stopping. So we're, you know, we're not here to learn to be good breathers or to learn to be good walkers, or even to learn to be good concentrators. <laughs> That's not what we're here to do. So it's important to notice how we're noticing things, to be sensitive to, to when we're getting too tight, when we're getting too slack, and to, uh, to modulate that you know, as part of directing our own practice. One yogi uh, came in for interview today and said um, that uh, it seemed like the takeaway from my uh, little morning stories the last couple of days about Ananda and Patachara uh, must be that we should all go to bed. <laughs> Which, in a way, <laughs> there's, there's, there's something to that. You know, there's this definite, there is a definite strand that we find in those, those traditional um, teaching stories, those enlightenment stories, that it's, it's in the moment when we lighten up a little bit when we relax a little bit, when we let off the, the, the pedal just a little bit, that the spiritual faculties come into balance and that the mind kind of falls into that sweet spot where everything is just the way that it needs to be. I feel like um, the dining room over at the retreat center, for those of you that have practiced there, um, I really feel like that's as sacred of a space as the meditation hall. <laughs> based on my own experience, based on talking to a lot of yogis, um, I'm willing to bet that there have been at least as many moments of profound insight and awakening in the dining room as in the meditation hall, because that's the place where we relax a little bit. You know, we're having a meal. Usually there's, it's pleasant. You know, we're not striving quite so hard in how we're paying attention. It's just more of a natural awareness there a lot of the time. And the mind falls into the place where it needs to be. Everything kind of comes into balance and clicks. Or it's the time when we're getting ready for bed. <laughs> you know, we know, we know we're going to be able to lie down in a minute and there's some relaxing. 
or it's the time when we're having a shower and enjoying that nice warm water, or the time when we're out walking in the woods and you know, looking at the chipmunks. It's, it's so often at those times when we just relax a little bit that things start to unfold. Of course, the caveat with that is that there's a whole lot of practice <laughs> that's go on, gone on before getting to that moment that's built the momentum and built the foundation for then everything being able to, to click. So skillful effort needs to be balanced and it needs to be steady. It needs to have this steadiness to it. There's a, a nice simile from the, the suttas of um, three children that says, uh, suppose three children go to a park to play. While walking, they see a tree with flowering tops and decide they want to gather some flowers. But, but the flowers are beyond the reach of even the tallest child. So one of the friends gets down on hands and knees and offers their back to serve as a step stool. Then the tallest child climbs up, but is not very stable in that position. So the third child comes over and offers their shoulder for support. Then the first child, standing on the back of the second and leaning on the third, can finally reach up and gather the flowers. Which uh, This metaphor always makes me think of the giant uh, magnolia trees that we have around the area where I live, down in Washington, D.C., um, which are blooming around this time of the year and are um, just so intoxicating. And usually they are up, up high in the branches of the, the mature trees out of reach of most children. Um, but, and usually the way that you know that they're there is that you're walking along and all of a sudden there's just this amazing heavenly deva-like fragrance <laughs> wafting down from these flowers that are so fragrant and like the size of dinner plates and uh, soft and velvety. And I can remember as a child, you know, going through much this, the same kind of exercise with my friends, you know, going through all sorts of gymnastics, trying to get somebody up there to be able to, to gather some flowers. So in the simile, the, the tall child who picks the flowers is said to be like concentration. And uh, effort is said to be like the, the support, like the child that gets down on their hands and knees to offer the support, to offer the, the platform for concentration to stand on. And then mindfulness is said to be like the, the child that the tall child leans on, that stabilizing aspect of the mind. So when right concentration has the support of uh, skillful effort and balanced by mindfulness, then those three factors of mind, the three uh, spokes of the path that make up the meditative portion of the Eightfold Path can come together to unify the, the mind and to bring it to a place to create the conditions for insight and awakening to arise. So effort needs that steady quality, that, that foundational quality, that supporting quality we might imagine that if, if that child on the bottom that's offering their back for support, you know, if they're kind of swaying from side to side or, you know, if they're firm and then all of a sudden they collapse, you know, and then they're firm again, then, you know, it's not going to work. The, 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 the tall child of concentration isn't going to be steady enough to actually uh, get the prize. So our effort needs to be uh, steady and persistent.
And the Buddha was also our, our role model in this respect. Um, you know, a lot is made in the traditional teaching stories of uh, the huge extremes that he traversed in the early part of his life. So, you know, starting off in the palace, leave, living a life of a great deal of uh, luxury, self-indulgence, self-indul- being spoiled by, by his family, really not giving any effort to the cultivation of his mind, uh, falling into that extreme of excess. And then after leaving home, becoming, you know, really quite an extreme renunciate, really depriving the body, striving, you know, every single moment, putting, him, putting both his body and his mind through just incredible contortions of, of deprivation and suffering. Um, there's a poem that I came across once that I found very interesting where he says um, that he didn't regret those extremes in his life, that he'd, he'd lived through those swings of the pendulum because they taught him the limit of feeling. In a, in a way, we, we all experience that in our lives, you know, that the, the, the path to uh, skillful effort, you know, and, and skill just in general in our practice is through a lot of unskillful effort. <laughs> you know, the path to the practice here just in general is generally through a lot of unskillfulness in our lives until, you know, we're left with this option. <laughs> Often the, the option of last resort for many of us. And then what, what um, brought the Buddha into discovering the middle path was at one point sitting and having this memory of being a child and sitting under a rose apple tree as his father was doing, you know, one of the ceremonies for, the, for a local festival, harvest festival or something, and just falling into this place of natural ease, you know, tranquil but alert. You know, that's the, the state that he describes, you know, present, you know, hearing the sounds, you know, noticing the air around him, sensations in his body, but just in a very natural and relaxed way, not with a lot of striving, not with a lot of effort, but also not disconnecting, not a lax state of mind, but tranquil and alert, not, not staying still, not struggling. And that memory uh, kind of snapped him out of being caught in these extremes that he had fallen into in the course of his life so far. And so he had some uh, delicious rice pudding and he took a bath. <laughs> And then he was ready to sit down under the Bodhi tree and do his work. So over time, you know, we, we, we each go through our own swings with regard to, to the effort that we're making in our practice. Now working too hard, too tense, now being too lax, too relaxed. Um, and over time, we get familiar with what that place of balance does feel like. You know, we, we fall into it more and more often. What it feels like to have the just very gentle, persistent effort. And we learn more and more how to, to make that kind of effort uh, reliably, consistently, so that it becomes more and more self-sustaining until we come to a point in the practice where we might reach a sense of, of effortless effort, that really the momentum of the mindfulness, the concentration, the effort, all comes together, like those three children working together to get the flower. And it feels like it's just rolling along on its own. It's like the momentum's gotten going and we could just let it do its thing now. There's not a lot of interference that we need to, to add. Kind of like a, a spaceship launching off into space, you know, for, to, for that initial push to get out of gravity's pull. There's a lot of effort that goes into it. But then once it's, it's broken out of the gravitational field, very little effort required. It's just really, you know, running, running on the momentum that it's already gained. It just needs little adjustments. So at times we may find ourselves at that place in practice where the, the practice is really just doing itself and we don't need to interfere too much. 
I'll end with this teaching um, from Ajahn Moon, who some of you may know. There's a great uh, book on his life, a little book. Um, Ajahn Moon uh, came out of Thailand, out of the Thai forest tradition, actually helped to found the modern Thai forest tradition. Um, he did most of his teaching in the first half of the 20th century. Um, was very well respected. He was one of these guys who kind of went off by himself into the country, into the forests, and just spent a lot of time kind of hiding out, uh, meditating by himself, very much like uh, you know the, the monastics that we hear about in the, the old stories. And uh, after a while, people kind of got wise that there was this guy you know wandering around out in the forest, and he'd really figured out a thing or two. And <laughs> people started teaching him out for seeking him out for teachings, and uh, then there was no way to, for him to get away. <laughs> <laughs> but he was said to have been a very influential teacher and really to, helped, to have helped a lot of people, many, many people on their path. It was even rumored he may have been an arhant. So this is a little bit of his teaching that's been preserved. He said, you can't remedy the changing flow of experiences. Fashioned by karma, they're not out to get anyone. If you grasp hold of them to push them this way or that, the mind has become obsessed and confused. Don't get caught up in resisting the natural way of all things. Let pleasant and unpleasant follow their own business. We simply free ourselves. Being unentangled within experiences, that's what's peaceful and cool. When you know the truth, you will let experiences go as soon as you see them changing. When you're weary of them, you will let them go easily with no need to use force. The Dharma is cooling. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.